Hey guys, and welcome to DeFacto. This is a podcast where we'll cover science topics from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Dree. And I'm Amelia. And today, instead of working on our EEs and IAs, we'll be talking about the coronavirus. So first of all, to go a bit into how the coronavirus infects people, um, the virus actually has a spike protein, which attaches to this, thing, this receptor called ACE2. And there's a lot of biochemistry te- um, terminology coming up here. But basically, it's a receptor that regulates a, a protein that's called ANG2. And without the regulation of this protein, there'll actually be inflammation and death of alveolar cells, which are cells in your lungs. And that basically translates into bad respiration, which means no energy and all those kind of bad things. So damage to the ACE2 receptor, which is what the virus does, means that the protein is not regulated, and this is how the virus gets into the cell. So what does the virus do in the cell? Well, it does what every virus does generally when it infiltrates cells. What it does is its genetic material gets into the cell, and then the cell, instead of making more of itself, starts making more of the virus which then gets assembled, the virus spills out, and when you cough or talk and droplets spread out, you'll get other people infected. Actually, I would say I'm pretty lucky because I don't personally know anyone that's been affected by the coronavirus, but obviously with the lockdown in place, um, there's been a lot of restriction on movement and that kind of thing, and it's been quite different, I would say. So yeah, actually, in the mo- at the moment, um, in England, they're starting to lift the restrictions. So, um, we in England can go out for as long as we want every day, as long as we're maintaining social distance, uh, social distancing, and we can meet one other person two meters away from a different household in a public place, which has been really nice to catch up with a couple of friends who we haven't really seen in a while. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where the situation is at in England and they're looking to send primary schools back to school starting with year six, year uh, one and reception at the beginning of June after half term. So that'll be interesting to see how that works and how that affects the spread of the virus as well. So Yeah, yeah I feel like generally in all the countries, it's kind of like this is a trial and if it works, then we're going to proceed with it. If it doesn't work, we'll go back into lockdown. Yeah, I think that's the thing. We don't really know how to come out of this. And I feel like every country's kind of waiting for the next one to move and see what happens and see what happens when they do start to lift things. So I think it is going to be a period of trial and error to kind of see what works and what's sustainable for maintaining safety and our livelihood. Um, In Malaysia, personally, I actually went out for the first time in like two months, um, two days ago. And that was pretty interesting because we went to a restaurant, but it's quite well. They're still taking um lockdown seriously, obviously, and we've been restri- uh, We've been relaxing lockdown measures as well. But what's been happening is that we can go to things like restaurants, but in a restaurant that would normally have, I would say, about twelve tables, we have like half the number, so we would have only six tables. And when you go into the restaurant, you have to take your temperature leave your name, leave your contact details, which I thought was quite interesting because it obviously does very well for contact tracing, but it was a very surreal experience. Yeah, so do you have that kind of temperature chest, uh, testing uh, wherever you go, sort of like in supermarkets and things? 
Yeah, so personally, I haven't been out, but my mom and my dad said that when they were in, because they went to get some groceries, and when they were in the shopping mall, they noticed that like in every store, someone would be taking your temperature and doing the procedure that I've just described, and that happens everywhere. Oh wow, so that's quite different to the UK then, where I think it's only really in airports where your temperature is checked um, before you can proceed onto the plane. Um, and we don't really have that kind of restriction in supermarkets. However, they are very, very rigid about queuing two metres apart and only having a certain number of people in the supermarket at any one time. So, yeah. Mm, that's pretty cool. And obviously, we've been having a lot of shortages of things to buy with toilet <laughs> yeah. papers and things. Yeah, although I feel like, I don't know how it is in Malaysia, but here it's definitely getting better, other than a few staples like flour and yeast, which we can't get our hands on. Um, the the general, like, basic, basics are pretty much there now. I don't know what it's like in Malaysia. Do you think it's because people are baking? Yeah, definitely, because everybody's at home for lunch now, so everyone's, like, suddenly making more bread and baking a lot more, um... And obviously people aren't going out to sandwich bars and things. So yeah, yeast and yeah, bread and flour so is gone. Much about yeah, we, we do it all the time. Okay, so let's move on to testing then. Actually, I have like an experience I heard about testing. So I've been personally tested and it was... I did a PCR test and what actually happened was I got a swab put into my nose like each of my nostrils and then it got sorry this is a bit graphic but it got put into my throat after that and it does it is quite uncomfortable like it triggered the gag reflex in me and then that but it was a really really fast procedure I think it lasted like about one minute and then they took the samples they sent it off to go and do testing I think it's quite interesting because I've never personally had this kind of test before but yeah, so it's, it's a really unique test, I would say. And, like, personally, I've only ever had a blood test, but I think, especially for everyone in the world nowadays, with the coronavirus becoming so prevalent, a lot of people are getting experience to these testing, and then, obviously, we're going to have a vaccine and things like that, and it's going to be a lot more medical-intensive from now on, I guess. Yeah, so I'm like you. I've never had any tests, really, other than blood tests although I know that in the UK they're doing a kind of randomized sample testing um so I think it's a study um started by Imperial College and they've sent out letters to a random sample of the population of which my brother was included um to send a home testing kit to them so that they can kind of get an idea of actually who in the population has either had it or has it and therefore how we proceed from now so yeah which brings on to a really good point so there are two kinds of tests now that's out there and one's called pcr which is the one i detailed just now and another one is the antibody test so first let's look into pcr so pcr is for if you currently have the coronavirus whereas antibodies are for if you have had it in the past because antibodies are the immune response and they're the things that if you test for, because after you've had the coronavirus, you will have produced these antibodies. Whereas if you've never had exposure to the coronavirus, whether it be through a vaccine or through actually getting the virus, you would not have those antibodies if you have not um, experienced it before. 
so um covering PCR PCR is something that takes a long time and it's usually I think prior to the coronavirus we didn't really cover much about PCR I mean in the IV it's a topic which we have covered recently but um, other than that I don't think you would have heard about it much and it's definitely not something that comes up in regular conversation but the coronavirus test happens to be a PCR test so how does this work well when you get infected there's not going to be a lot of virus in you yet, especially in the early stages of infection. And that means that if you want to test for it, well, it's really, really hard to test a really, really small quantity of a virus. So what do we have to do? Well, the easiest thing is to amplify the virus so that there's a quantity that's enough to be tested. And the idea is that if you are able to get the DNA and amplify it enough, the DNA being the genetic material, if you are able to amplify it enough such that there's a testable quantity, then you would think that you would be able to detect the... If there are very, very small amounts of the virus, if you replicate these enough times, then you would be able to see that, well, there is virus, even though it's in very small quantities at the moment. So PCR is um, polymerase chain reaction, and it's basically a method that allows you to do this. So. The virus has genetic material encoded in RNA, which is just another type of genetic material, and it's a lot less stable than DNA. So actually, um, because it's an RNA virus, researchers usually use DNA, just because DNA is a lot more stable than RNA, and if you use RNA, it would just be degraded really quickly. So researchers use a method called reverse transcription, and what happens is you have an enzyme that gets nucleotides to an RNA and forms a complementary DNA strand that then gets converted into DNA. So this is why it's put into PCR and it amplifies the genetic material and allows for detection of the virus. PCR is a kind of thing where, as a, a common stereotype in science, you put a couple of things into a machine and the machine does it for you. But what exactly is happening? Well, what the components for PCR are the DNA sample, which has been previously detailed, primers, which are basically like building blocks, and they kind of say, well, start building here. And nucleotides, um, tag polymerase, and a mixed buffer, just to make sure that the conditions are nice and kind of suitable for the reaction to take place. And they're put into a PCR tube, which is then put into a thermal cycler, which is a fancy word for a machine. And so one cycle, as, as in the name, it's a cycler, and therefore it carries out in cycles. So one cycle involves three stages. So first at 95 degrees, which is really hot, obviously, the DNA denatures because we aren't really used to living in 95 degrees, so at that temperature, the DNA would separate. And then at 55 degrees, the primers, which are the aforementioned building blocks, that say start building here, they'll bind to the strands of DNA in a process known as annihilation. And then we increase the temperature again to 72 degrees Celsius, and new strands of DNA are synthesized, and this is how the process generates a lot of DNA. So this repeats over many cycles, and as you can imagine, this would result in an exponential increase in the amount of DNA available, which is then analyzed for the, for the presence of the coronavirus. That was a lot of information. <laughs> so now a bit on antibody testing. Um, so this works using a blood sample and um, 
in the blood sample they're testing for two antibodies uh the immunoglobulin m and the immunoglobulin G. So the IgM antibodies develop early on in the infection, usually within the first four weeks. Um, however, we're not sure on the specific time frame with COVID-19. And the second lot of antibodies, the IgG antibodies, um, are more likely to show after you've recovered. Um, the, I guess the main problem with this test is that although you can test for the presence of these antibodies, you can't tell if you have enough of them to be immune. So whilst they can tell you if you've had the um, virus previously, um, we don't know if you're immune to it in the future. The issue that we're faced with now is what exit strategy will work best given how difficult it is to track the progress of the disease and how difficult it is to know the risk factor um, so one of the first things that they're looking to do in the UK is um, sending workers back to work who cannot work from home. Um, so that started last Wednesday, it's now the 19th of May. Um, and I guess with that comes the problems of what do you do with tra public transport and public facilities and how to keep those clean. Um, the next big thing to go back will be schools, which I know in England, um, at uh, in the first week of June, they're going to be aiming to send back year six and reception and year one students um, in smaller classroom sizes um, so that social distancing can be imposed, although it's not yet clear how that's going to work and if it's going to be effective to kind of stop the spread of the disease um so yeah that's kind of where the exit strategy is at in the uk although a few weeks ago they were they launched an app on the isle of wight to kind of so anybody who had symptoms um would record it on their app and then those who had been in contact with that person would be told to self-isolate and I think this could be a really good opportunity and a good way out of this lockdown if we can get a much clearer idea of who is infected and who's been in contact with those infected. Yeah I think it's a really cool idea I mean I heard about this I'm not sure where it's at in Malaysia I don't think anyone is developing an app but um, I heard about this Thing, this app in China so there's there's this app that's apparently integrated into people's phones already because China has a lot of apps that um, everyone in the country uses because China does restrict the um, num um, the types of apps that its users can download so there's this app that's apparently been used to detect so okay um, it'll probably be more simple if I explain how this works so the concept is that everyone has a green light on their phones and if you go onto, let's say, a tube, and then you get on the tube, and then it turns out that actually someone on that tube is tested to have coronavirus, well, you were on the tube, so you will therefore have a red light until proven that you don't have it, which I think is a pretty good strategy. I think it's definitely a better idea to err on the side of caution, especially at this stage. Yeah, I think that could work really well just to kind of get a picture of where the virus is at and who's safe to be out um, to minimise the risk and, but also at the same time to allow us to go back to normal life. Um, 
So whilst there's no current COVID specific treatment, there are several drug trials going on around the world. Um, so some of the drugs being, a lot of the drugs being tested are pre-existing drugs um, for different conditions. So for example, the NHS currently is part of their recovery clinical trials are looking at a few drugs, including uh, lopinavir or ritonavir, which is commonly used to treat HIV. Um, and another one is low doses of dexamethasone, which is a type of steroid, um, which is used in a range of conditions to reduce the inflammation that, co- that COVID-19 causes. Another drug that they're looking into is an anti-malarial drug um, called hydro hydroxychloroquine which has gained a lot of attention in the US recently yeah because of I think did you say that Trump is self-prescribing that at the moment yeah apparently he's been taking it but I think it might be too early in terms of drug trials to say definitively that this will help yeah so one drug that's really spiked quite a lot of attention is the drug remdesivir so in a recent study they took i think it was in china the study um they tested they gave a lot of patients um with severe covid19 who were in the icu this drug um in a a clinical trial and whilst the results were not statistically significant patients receiving the remdesivir um, had a numerically faster time to clinical improvement than those on placebo so I guess there is a potential um, of this drug to help those with COVID-19 although more research is needed at the moment um, into that Um, another really positive news though it is it's a step in the right direction i guess and another really positive um area of research is antibody rich um, convalescent plasma um so this would involve taking plasma in the blood which is the liquid majority part of your your blood um taking that and um from patients who have recovered from covid19 in the hope that they still have the required antibodies in the plasma sample. Would you have to have the same blood type, probably? Um, yeah, so I assume you'd have to have the same blood type as the person you're getting the transplant from. Um, but yeah, so uh, in the clinical trial in which they're looking at this, um, the patients would receive two transfusions over two days and then that'll be monitored for 21 days after to test its um, effectiveness. So that potentially could be a very exciting piece of research. Yeah, all these sound really interesting. I mean, there are quite a few drugs, but hopefully one of them will work and we will be able to treat people. But I think related to all these talk about drugs, I think something that everyone has been holding out for is a vaccine. So what is happening with a vaccine? Well, based on statistics published by the WHO on the 15th of May, we have eight vaccines in clinical trials, most of which are in the stage between stages one and two. So just to detail what stages one and two are, stages, stage one is um, a, a stage of trial 
which is testing on small groups of healthy people. Whereas stage two is where you test a lot more people and it's to establish the dosage and the side effects. So it's basically seeing if it'll work in a large proportion of the population. And I think something that's quite exciting, which is also going to supplement the new spot drugs, is that 110 vaccines are in preclinical trials. And preclinical trials are where we don't test them on humans, but we test them on animals. But I feel like the fact that we have 118 vaccines potentially in the making is quite positive news. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it's very difficult because vaccines take a long time to go through all the necessary trials to ensure that they're safe. Um, but the fact that they do have this many potential um, vaccines in progress already, I think is really encouraging. Yeah, I definitely agree. And the thing is, it's been so quick, which is so, it's crazy and it's incredible because the fastest vaccine to date was four months and that took four years. And here it's been about five months since the viral RNA was released and we've already got 118 vaccines, which is incredible. But I think a very big question most people have is why is developing a drug or a vaccine taking so long? So why is a vaccine taking so long? Well, first you have you have a whole process for developing a vaccine. So first you have to develop on the type of vaccine you want to make because there's not just one type of vaccine, there are different kinds of vaccines. For instance, you can take parts of because you would not really want to introduce the actual virus because it will cause disease. So you want to make sure that the body can recognize it as the virus without it actually being the virus. And there are a couple ways to do this. For instance, you could give the viruses genetic material or you could give the viruses a part of the virus that the body can detect and then produce antibodies. So the end goal is the production of antibodies. And then you have to actually develop the vaccine and then you have to trial the vaccine with preclinical trials. And then you have to do phase one of clinical trials, which is testing on small groups of healthy people. It usually would take a year, but because COVID-19 is now a global pandemic, um, it's predicted that this will take three months. And then phase two is, as previously said, it's for establishing dosage and side effects. So the thing about establishing dosage is you can't really say, well, I'm going to give you this amount and it will definitely be okay. You have to test different amounts. So you have to, you might have to give people multiple doses and after each dose you have to wait to see if there are any effects. So this takes a really, really long time. So usually it would take about two to three years. Experts have predicted that it's going to take about eight months from COVID-19, but as you can imagine that's still a really long time. So then that doesn't end. We actually have phase three as well and that's for really kind of establishing that it works like the final step and it's for effectiveness and protectiveness mostly and it involves thousands of people so what happens is you have two groups of people you give one um, set of people a placebo which is where you don't actually give them infection but you, uh, you don't actually give them the vaccine but they think that they have a vaccine and then you give another set of people the vaccine and then you compare to see that if it's actually a vaccine that reduces it so after phase three they submit the virus and then they go through all the official regulations and then we can finally use it clinically. And then we have the problem of manufacturing and distribution because coronavirus isn't just a one country thing. And if one country does get a vaccine, the hope would be that it would be shared with the world. And that would, I mean, even within a country, you would struggle with producing it en masse because production takes a lot of time and effort. 
but if you want to get it to the whole world, I mean, that just seems crazy. Yeah, so I guess whilst that's happening and whilst the scientists are working so hard to um, to produce the vaccine for us, um, I think it's very easy to be overwhelmed by the amount of scaremongering among the news and telling what's real and what's just not. So we thought we'd, to conclude, um, just bust a few myths. Oh god, that sounds so cheesy. <laughs> um, I thought we'd just um, share a few common myths which are not true. Um, so yeah. Okay, so let's start off with this. Some people appear to believe that 5G can cause coronavirus. I was so confused when I found out about this because it's just basically not true. But then I did a bit of research into it and I found out that actually it's the product of mostly people believing that 5G is inherently bad for you and coronavirus is just a coincidental piece of evidence that they're using to support their claims. So I think it's just an important thing to point out that correlation is not causation, which is something that we've been talking about a lot lately in school. But Just remember that even though there might be upward trends in two things, it doesn't mean that they're related. They could both be caused by an external factor. But in the case of 5G and coronavirus, there's honestly no scientific evidence for it at the moment. So not true. Yeah. The next one is injecting yourself or drinking or bathing in disinfectant will not cure or prevent you from getting COVID-19. Um, this was mentioned on TV a few weeks ago. Um, however, there is no scientific evidence to back this up. And in fact, drinking disinfectant will have very bad effects on your health. So that is not true. (laughs) Yeah, you probably won't get the coronavirus, but you will definitely get some kind of poisoning from the disinfectant. Which would not be pleasant. No. So the idea is that when we are able to go outside as we are nowadays, we would hope that we would have things like hand sanitizers. But actually hand sanitizers are really expensive at the moment, especially because demand for hand sanitizers is really going up and supply for hand sanitizers is also going down because of closures, because of basically it's really hard to get hand sanitizers at the moment. And some people have been t- have taken to using bleach as an alternative, but honestly, bleach is just like disinfectant. It doesn't do anything for you. It might give you, it it might help with the coronavirus. It won't, but um, it might theoretically. But even if it did, it would give you bleach. Like, it's not good to put bleach on your hands. You will literally bleach your hands. So, not a good idea. Um, so the next one is that COVID-19 is a lifelong disease, which it is not. It is possible to recover. We've seen many people recover from COVID-19, although it is the immunity to COVID-19 is yet to be um, kind of revealed and we don't know how long antibodies will last in protecting us against getting it again. But it is not a lifelong disease. 
Yeah, and another thing that the coronavirus is not is it doesn't kind of discriminate in terms of ages. So it won't, just because you're younger doesn't mean that the coronavirus won't affect you. It will. It might not affect you as severely. In fact, you might be more likely to be asymptomatic. We don't really know yet. But even if that was the case, it doesn't mean that you won't be able to have it. Yeah, and I think that's really important because actually with 80% of cases, they will only get mild to no symptoms at all. So um, so just, yeah, just because you're younger doesn't mean that um, we're not going to get it. It's just maybe that the symptoms are way less severe than in the older population. And finally, just talking about hot weather... Um, there was this concept that hot weather does not prevent does prevent transmission. Actually, I think what the whole concept about hot weather was actually that when we first about heard about coronavirus, especially in the northern hemisphere, there was a lot of talk about how it was really hard to discern from the common cold, and therefore, well, let's say you had a cold. How would you know if it was actually the cold or the coronavirus? Especially since the winter is flu season, so the symptoms were so similar that a lot of people were like, yeah, but I just have a cold. And I think that that's actually the reason why people were saying that, well, in the summer, it'll be fine. Actually, it's more like in the summer, you are less likely to have a cold because summer is not flu season. And therefore, you would be more likely to be able to discern coronavirus from the flu. But it's not actually that hot weather prevents transmission. So to wrap up this podcast, I think we've been talking about a lot of things about the coronavirus, definitely a lot of information to take in, but our idea was just to give you a basic rundown of where we're at at the moment. Yeah, and I think just to maybe clear up in some ways some um, perhaps like rumours and fake news, but also a bit more about the science behind what's actually happening with testing and vaccinations and how the virus in itself works. Yeah, and just a small note of caution, I know we have been saying things like um, there are lots of vaccines, there are lots of drugs, but we're not sure how to proceed. And I think, as as we've said, there is definitely a lot of uncertainty surrounding the coronavirus. But I think what's important to remember is also that there are trials, there are vaccines, there are drugs that are being developed. And I think something that's been really positive throughout this time is we've seen a lot of support for each other a lot of support within communities and all these things. And while some parts of this podcast are perhaps a little depressing, there's also a lot of news about things that might work. And I think we just have to hold out hope. Yeah, definitely. I think in many ways, COVID-19 has brought us together as a community. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back with more facts that are hopefully both uplifting and that are hopefully true and slightly depressing, but also uplifting next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.